This podcast is sponsored by King Manual Therapy, restoring function to body and voice. Later on, we will be discussing the services Stephen offers and where you can find him. Hello and welcome to Industry Minds, the podcast that discusses the importance of talking about mental health within the creative arts. My name is Cathy Reed, And I'm Scarlett Maltman. And this week we are joined by a very well-known name in the industry. Some of his acting credits include Inspector Javert in Les Mis, The Phantom in Phantom of the Opera, Perron in Evita, Khashoggi in Queen's We Will Rock You. Uh, he was Archibald Craven in the Scottish premiere of The Secret Garden, which is a fabulous show. In the original West End and Turin production of Beauty and the Beast, uh, Ragtime at the Charing Cross Theatre, the list continues. He is also a creative producer and runs his company Gingerboard Productions um, and he devised and directed the world-renowned Three Phantoms. Who else could it be but Earl Carpenter? Yeah. Hello, Earl. <laughs> Hello to you all. How are you? <laughs> Sorry, Gosh, no, I mean, you're kind of, it's very weird when you have your CV read out to you yeah. and you kind of think, oh gosh, okay, yeah. I've done quite a bit, haven't yeah. I? <laughs> I also seen you in Ragtime and it is one of my favourite shows I've ever seen. It was amazing. So we start with a little game at the start of the podcast. So it's just a quick word association game. Scarlett's always on this one. So just the first thing that pops into your head. Okay, are you ready, Earl? Go on then. Okay, Piccadilly Circus. Uh, um, Eros. Holiday. Um, Bali. Ooh, Bali. Nice. Positivity. Oh, my God. Why? I had Teletubbies come into my head. I don't know why. Why Teletubbies? I've not Teletubbies. Teletubbies, everyone. Teletubbies. Champagne. Oh. Uh, Grange Park. Ooh. Sunday mornings. Uh, coffee and relaxed watching Country File. Beautiful. A good book. Pass. The Palace Theatre. Oh, good grief. <laughs> the Central Line at Rush Hour. Stay away. Yeah. Stay clear, folks. Yeah. Stay clear. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Earl, we, as we said before, read out a lot of your CV, not even half of it. Um, you're obviously a very established actor, first and foremost, and now you're a successful creative producer. Um, but could you tell us about where your love for performing started and why you decided to get into the industry? I can, gosh, and it was quite, it's quite an easy one actually, and I think it has a lot to do with the want to be chatting as well with you today. Um, I mean, my initial, uh, my initial draw to theatre was through school, and it was evident that I was a bit of a thicky at school. Uh, I failed all my exams. Um, my, it was, it was kind of uh, an un spoken rule but the idea was for me to go into the armed forces um, or the navy which was kind of you know the 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 path that my parents and their parents had taken and my father particularly with the navy I wasn't interested in that the only thing I did found a little bit of interest in was um, was the RAF so the idea was originally to go and be in the RAF as a pilot but unfortunately I failed all my exams, and they, yes. So that kind of route wasn't wasn't right for me. Um, I struggled at school big time. 
Uh, not only because I was called Earl, I was also Ginger. So, you know, as a kid, I was incredibly bullied. But I found solace, I found support, I found a place of creativity where I wasn't judged um, in drama. And it was through my drama teacher at school who kind of encouraged um, that path. Um, so I just fell into it from that point of view and loved it and kept doing, um, you know, as many things as I could through school or then out of school and then working. I think my first experience with a with a established theatre company was Forest Forge Theatre Company, which is down in, in Dorset. Um, and that kind of all of a sudden gave me an enthusiasm for this kind of genre that uh, was expressive and you could be what you wanted to be and people around you didn't judge you and didn't call you names and, you know, and weren't kind of on your case about being theatrical and all that type of stuff. Um, so that was, that, that gave me a confidence um, which I couldn't find anywhere else, particularly at school. And so the path um, that I followed then was very much, you know, try to join every single amateur dramatic society as I possibly could. An amateur dramatic society whore, I was known <laughs> as, um, because I kept jumping all over the place. And I just found there was an interest. My drama teacher thankfully persuaded um, Bournemouth and Paul College to take me to do um, a two-year A-level theatre studies course with two former RSC actors, um, Charles Lamb and Terry Clark, who are regrettably no longer with us. But they instilled an extraordinary amount of energy in us as young performers. But one of the things that was, what they weren't about was, they, they were, sorry, they were about understanding the environment, mm -hmm. understanding everything to do with this industry that, you know, in theory I would be going into. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was kind of the foundation of, of my want to pursue this as a career. Amazing. So did, did you go to drama school? No. No? Oh, fantastic. No, no, um, so just talk us through your journey into the kind of professional mm -hmm. side of it then. So after college, I had about a year or two of going, oh, I don't know what to do. So I ended up selling solar heating, ended up doing financial services and then ended up being um, an assistant manager of a happy eater, which used to be kind of the equivalent of little chef or whatever. But then I was kind of still drawn to theatre. I was still doing amateur dramatics and still loved it. And I remember going up to London with a friend and she was auditioning at that time for Les Mis. Uh, and this would have been 91 and uh, and I was I, you know I was saying to her, I still want to get I still want to be involved and really really itchy back at home because the other thing about being with the amateur dramatic scene you know to play a principal in the amateur world you either have to be with the society for about 140 years um, you know or you you had to earn your stripes um, so that was a little bit uh, frustrating um, but I knew there was a group of us, very similar of age, didn't quite know what to do, or were waiting to go on to theatre school. Um, and at that point, I didn't know that I needed or wanted to go to theatre school. So we set it up, um, we set up a, a theatre company down in Bournemouth called The Big Little Theatre Company, um, which um, is still running today, but more as an education environment. And that was our outlet. Um, and I was with them for two years, 
Um, so we did the first thing we ever did was like a songs from the shows, and then someone said, "Oh, you know, you should do, you should do a musical." And we were like, "Oh, okay." And our teachers actually at Jellico hated musicals. You weren't allowed to utter, <laughs> utter the word. Um, so we ended up as a very young company doing West Side Story at the Winter Gardens in Bournemouth. Um, with a, you know, we had about 40 in the cast, 40 in the orchestra. It was huge, and it would just so happen to be unbelievably successful because we just hit, you know, uh, we'd hit that environment at the right time with the right people. Yeah. And uh, and I was like itchy and kind of going, oh, I need to do this professionally. Um, and so I thought, let's go to theatre school in London. So I made a few inquiries and did a few auditions. And I got into, I think I remember, I got into Mountview and Guildhall. Um, but it was the year that the Dorset County Council dropped all the funding. So as much as I had this place, I then couldn't get the money to go. But a friend of mine, very kindly, uh, gave me his audition for the Cameron Macintosh bursary. Because he, he literally got a job on the cruise ships and then went off for about five years on the cruise ships. So I ended up auditioning for a Macintosh bursary to go to theatre school. And uh, and I, this was in 1992, I think it was about then. And I, after the audition, um, which was at, I think it was at the Novello here in, in the West End, I got home and there was a gentleman by the name of Nick Allett, who's um, kind of Cameron's right-hand man, and left me this voicemail message, which basically said, um, oh, we just wanted to let you know that we're not going to give you the bursary um, because we don't think you need to go to theatre school. You know, you have enough experience having done what you've been doing, you know, um, where I was, where I grew up and stuff like that, and with the Big Little Theatre Company, they said, why don't you just get yourself an agent? and we'll hopefully see you at an audition. And that, as they say, is history. Um, and I still actually, I still saved, I saved that voicemail that Nick did, and I played it to him actually when we were doing Witches of Eastwick, and I said, do you remember this? But it's extraordinary how, you know, things came around. And, and that was kind of my path. All I knew that um, I had to get myself an agent. So having had the experience of starting my own theatre company and having had the experience of at Jellico Theatre where you were taught the entire environment. You know, you had to do props, you had to do wardrobe, you had to do lighting, you had to do sound, you had to do set design. We even had a class that was arts administration. Um, so, you know, we were kind of well set up to understand the entire um, environment. So I, I knew that really the only benefit that theatre school would be would have been for that showcase at the end of the three yeah, years to get an agent. Yeah. So I thought to myself, I know, <laughs> I'll do my own, mm. being the confident little gin <laughs> gingerhead person that I was. Um, so I did. I in um, It was in 93. I did a little one-man show with two a couple of friends who guested called Sincerely Yours, and a friend of mine, a very dear friend called Neil Rutherford, um, uh, sent his agent down to see me. Uh, saw me and uh, was very complimentary, and six weeks later, I had my first ever professional job, which was with Bill Kenwright, my apprenticeship years with Mr. Kenwright 
on a, a musical called Robin Prince of Sherwood, which was kind of the Robin Hood rock version of Joseph, basically. But it was extraordinary. Um, and yeah, and thereafter came the rat race that is our delightful commercial musical theatre industry. Yeah, brilliant. I think it's so interesting because I know, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a girl called um, Isis Hainsworth mm-hmm. who hadn't trained, kind of a similar path to you. She just was like, okay, I'm going to audition for a Western show. She got it, and now she's signed with a massive agent, you know, countless BBC shows later. So it's, you know, it's this whole stigma again attached to you. You won't make it unless you go to drama school, and it's completely, complete nonsense, yeah. complete nonsense. So you came to us um, asking to be featured on the podcast, um, and you said that you'd like to discuss reaching a in quotation marks, certain age, um, and the challenge of dealing with um, depression when everyone in the industry thinks you're at the top of your game. Um, could you just tell us more about your journey on this topic? Indeed. I mean, it's... Actually, even since writing that email, um, the my perception of the reasons for wanting to talk with you today has, has also grown. Um, and if I can, I, I will step back a little because there's a there's a defining moment as well which I don't think you're told about nor are you taught about let alone the conversation about longevity and how do you create a career out of this industry um, particularly how do you create a career out of an industry when you've been to drama school and you end up with a 40 50 60 thousand pound debt that's a completely different conversation but there was a point um, that you, uh, you know, and I'm hoping that anyone and everyone who listens to this will 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 experience it in some way, shape, or form. Which is that moment, that that defining moment when you think, yes, I've kind of made it. You know, as a performer in this industry, I am being recognised by um, the 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 investment or the confidence that producers have in you when they get to know you over the years and they get to see you auditioning or they get to see you in various bits and pieces throughout and then they give you the uh, you know the honor of playing a principal and that in its own way comes with some significant changes you know to you as a person um, but you don't necessarily recognize it or understand it at the time and it's only when you, you know, when you get a little older and you get a little bit more uh, aware of, you know, the, the, the process and the understanding of, of what a, being a principal is, you know, and depending on you as a person and how you go about your work and how you understand your work or how you understand the responsibilities of being a principal, um, how you, you react to, um, you know, that challenge and that um, kind of quagmire of of what and how to be um, the bigger thing is that I what I hadn't realized is the loneliness that kind of gets thrust upon you where you've you know where I did you know I was so lucky to have an incredible apprenticeship over a five six seven year period before I got my you know my first principal role and all of a sudden I'd as much as you can get incredibly infuriated <laughs> Being in a dressing room with five, six, seven, eight other people, all of a sudden you then have a dressing room by yourself. And at the time you're like, I've got my own dressing room, woohoo, space, exactly. exactly. But it's over the years when you realise actually how detrimental that can be. 
and how detrimental that was. Um, and again, depending on the roles that you're playing, and like I said earlier, you, you know, your perception of how you maintain being a principal, you know, you're, you are subjected to certain life changes, you know, those days of going out and getting hammered at Shuttleworth and stuff like that till four o'clock in the morning are gone. You know, you do, you have a responsibility to put in eight shows a week as a, as a professional performer at the highest possible standard that you perceive and is perceived of you. But you also realize and understand that as a principal, the company has a very different perspective of you. You know, they look at you differently. There is a distance. Uh, and if you're anyone like me that does, unfortunately, favor not socializing, um, I mean, I've always been very much the I need to go home at the end of the night type of thing. And and that there's a price to pay with that. You, you kind of um, remove yourself from that social world that theater is so, can be so fantastic. Um, and unfortunately, there are a lot of people along that journey who don't understand that. And so you also then get, as a result of your excommunication from that world, you you are looked at differently, you know, and you, unfortunately you get negative comments rather than people who go, no, I know why he does that, I know why he goes home, I know why he decides not to come out on the lash with us, you know, and rather in, you know, and know that, well, I have to maintain, you know, what I have to maintain. But it was, it's really weird. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're thrust into this position. Um, and again, like I said, depending on how you view your position, you you end up being and struggling with feeling very unsupported. Um, and it's, it's such a, and that, there lies the kind of the, the slow unraveling of you as a human within our profession, certainly for me, and I'm only talking um, for me, you know, and I'm sure there are many, many people who handle that transition differently, who handle being a, uh, a principal differently, but I was, I was brought up to, you know, to protect the brand, if that makes sense. You know, I'm there to do a job to the best of my ability because I have that responsibility um i'm i suppose dare i use the word old school maybe i don't know i don't know whether that is the right label but the years went by um you know and i again i was so so fortunate to kind of roll from one show i mean the kind of the my first ever role um that i was cast as as a principal was sunset boulevard the original uk tour of that even though i'd done beast um, in town, and but that was a kind of a takeover. I'd done the whole three years at the Dominium, and I was moved up as the years went on. Same as Wishes of Eastwick. Again, I started, so I left Beauty and the Beast um, as as the Beast to be ensemble in second cover Daryl Van Horn. Yep. Um, but I ended up then playing Daryl for a ten week period, and it was actually those ten weeks that kind of established me as a as a principal performer, and there, straight after, I get landed um, Sunset Boulevard, um, which was, you know, extraordinary, but came with significant challenges. There are there are a lot of people who know me and know that chapter um, that, you know, unfortunately ended up being a very unhappy period for me, and one of which that 
resulted in my only way of dealing with it by leaving the production. Um, there are a lot of rumours as to why and how I left that production. Um, uh, but there, there came a point that, that I did not know how to handle the situations that I was in, the, the situations that I was exposed to. The, you know, being a young principal, you, you, just, you, you are thrown these extraordinary challenges that you're not adapted to deal with. You don't have the education, the experience to be able to go, I know how to deal with this. Um, and it actually ended up with me leaving the performance in the interval. Um, it was the it it amounted to such an extraordinary scenario that no one could support me with not even the management or anything because it was it, it was of a personal nature between me and another member of the company that was that no one could really understand and no one could really um, help us with but it, it resulted in that process of I have to leave and it was it was ghastly. It was a horrific chapter, and one that still rears its head occasionally. Um, but when I recall it, uh, you know, it, it it was. It still today reverberates in a way that you know I wish, as an older man, I could have been in that position again because I would have known how to handle it. But I think that that started a, a, an incredible journey of, of 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 a lack of confidence paranoia um, and a real struggle to to comprehend what it is to be a principal performer um, and it then got to uh, so the journey thereafter again I was lucky to to get over that and um, managed to get on and get some incredible roles between that time and you know as you said the Scottish premiere of The Secret oh, Garden, like. thank you. Um, and then going into Phantom of the Opera, um, and again, that in itself was an incredible journey to Les Miserables, which was, and again, Les Mis has been a phenomenal chapter in my career, but it was one at that time that I didn't know how to handle. You know, and I, you know, you look back on it, and you look as much as it afforded me some incredible opportunities. You know that I had some of my darkest days doing Les Mis, um, and in particular, a time when I was in Toronto uh, and being away from my um, my support network, so to speak, and through a combination of again ostracizing myself by being one, my attitude towards being a principal, uh, to my attitude towards um, what it was to, to have that kind of responsibility, but also the very nature of the role. Yeah. The role itself pushes you because of the way the, the kind of the track works, same as Phantom. You know, Michael Crawford designed that track to not meet other members of the company backstage so you 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 end up living in a world that is so insular and away from everything um as was Javert um not so much when we were at the Queen's because the Queen's backstage as I'm sure many of people that have been there is so tiny you know you can't help but meet and see people but I ended up being in this enormous theatre in in Toronto 
dealing with the pressures, obviously, of the scrutiny of, you know, of the management and stuff like that at a very important time for that show, you know, and the, you felt the pressures, um, uh, especially when the big boss came in, you know, and who has an incredible way of supporting you as a performer, but it's often in such a robust way that you, you sometimes don't know how to to handle it or take it but it's you know and it, I was in a position then where I couldn't handle what was being thrown at me and I couldn't handle being away from my um, support network I couldn't handle being lonely in a country that I didn't have any friends with and it I found myself escalating to an extraordinary emotional place that was I was so unhappy I cannot begin to tell you and it was kind of a concophony of all these challenges that had been before me that I didn't know how to handle and because you go through that process of dissecting and trying to reflect on them and you know could I have handled it better what if I didn't do that what if I did do that and it just became a massive massive problem you know and I'd gone through a divorce and and just a multitude of things, and I didn't know how to handle being around, um, you know, a very um, robust management as well that I thought I was doing a right, doing right by, and doing the right things. But when I was challenged, my performance was challenged, you know, and it just left me in a place of utter despair. Um, and I found myself, you know, for hours and hours being in this apartment block in Toronto and not being able to get out because it was minus <laughs> 70 outside. And I went stir crazy, you know, and it got to a point and it kind of amalgamated into a very, very, very dark day. Um, you know, one of which that, uh, yeah, um, thankfully I'm, you know, I'm not a big drinker, you know, and I think had that been an addition, additional um, resource then I, I think I might not have seen the end of that day. Um, being on the 48th floor of an apartment block had an appeal on this particular day. And when I look back at that chapter and when I realised that, you know, it was an amalgamation of trying to find my way through um, and navigate through a, a, an industry that... And I'm only talking about commercial musical theatre. Commercial musical theatre is a very very different animal uh, and I'm very aware of that though I'm only I'm more aware of that now if that makes sense it is an oil tanker you know you are a part of it at the time that you are a part of it but it once you've come out of it for a bit it carries on regardless and you know and it's um and there are difficulties even now having you know having done over 2,000 shows as Javert I've been to Broadway, I've been to Canada, I've been all around the UK with it, the West End, Manila, Singapore. Um, and now not being a part of it, and when you see all this activity that's going on with Les Mis, I now have a different chapter to consider, which is that not being a part of it. And that in its own right brings up challenges. The, the fact that I am now no longer part of that world and now, and again, now getting to your point about when you do get to a certain age, um, I mean, I have, and again, I, I, I say this with a degree of caution because I do appreciate that I have been so lucky 
for so many years, um, and even being out of the country for the last four years, kind of the beginning of last year, coming back into the industry thinking, I need to get a place back here. That was when I started realizing, one, okay, have I been out of the country too long? Or now, has it actually changed when I am now perceived as the older person? And, and when you audition for a certain role, uh, and after many recalls, you're then told you are too old-fashioned in style. Um, compared to who else is up for the role, you do realize I'm in that place. I'm in that transition. And you think, how the hell did that happen? It only feels like yesterday that I was doing Robin Prince of Sherwood with Bill Kenwright. And now I'm our 49 this year. And I am literally, I'm looking at nothing, you know, and that's, that's extraordinary because, you know, once I did think that my CV would at least create longevity mm -hmm. and it doesn't. And that's incredibly scary, you know, and I'm now in a position of, I have, there's no work. Uh, I have very, very few opportunities to even audition now for things. And I feel like I was 30 years ago and I'm not adapted to that. I've, you know, it's, I'm not, I don't have the skill set to be able to go, I'm out of work. I need to do something about this. And as much as I have my production company, I'm, my production company is only as active as I am. And people do react to your currency. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, your, where you are in the industry at that moment in time. So even though as a production company, you know, I've, I've made it possible to, to have different dialogues with different people um, based on shows that I've kind of created and, and, and things like that, I'm still very conscious though of me promoting myself as part of that package on a role that I played five, six, seven, eight years ago. And I, so my challenge now is I've got to get over the fact that my CV is still there and it doesn't really matter, but I still feel bad about saying, yes, you should employ me. I, Cause I used to be the phantom, you know, I used to be in Javert yeah. back in 1734, <laughs> you know, and it's, and that's, that's difficult. Um, but it's, I think all in all it's, I wished at some point, um, as much as I knew, you know, we all knew at that time, and we still do all now, um, theatre is a very, very difficult industry to make a career out of. We know that. I knew that 30 years ago. You know, everyone used to say in those days, get a proper job, you know. Still do. They still do. But even proper jobs now, I mean, they are experiencing unemployment in a way that they haven't had before. However, um, it is tough, you know, having had the, the success as, you know, you classed my career as successful. Um, and I, I really struggle with that statement because I class success as a continuation, as, 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 as that ability to constantly go from one job to another job to another job to job with, with relative ease without a great deal of hassle or too many auditions, you know. Um, but I'm now in a position where I've, I've kind of got to start again. 
and because at some point it's and it's weird and i and i've used this saying with a, or a statement with a few friends i feel locked out of my industry i feel like i'm now no longer allowed to do my job and i know that's my, i know that's me i know that's me creating that you know on some level i've got to say the best of my commercial musical theater career is over and that's so tough to acknowledge yeah. to kind of go i I've had my time. I feel like one of those incredible performers that I looked up to when I was in Les Mis for the first time back in 96, of these people that have gone through this as well, have gone through this transition. But I wish one of those buggers had told us to say, look, you may do very, very well. You may do very, very well. But there will come a point where it will stop naturally and you have to weather a transition, and that whether that transition be age or gender, um, you know, or or anything associated with the casting process. And again, it and it's so difficult, and it is, and you know, and again, that's what one of the many reasons of, of wanting to kind of talk about actually that success is. Yeah, it's a very strange thing, you know, and it's, and this industry is peppered with extraordinary opportunities, um, as well as incredible challenges, and one, and ones that many, many people will not be able to, to work through, because we don't have the support network, we don't have the education to kind of go, look, this is what will happen. It's like, how you, you know, when you read these horrible things about, you know, when people are working in a career for 40 or 50 years, they reach retirement and they just give up. Because they've, their life has been all about their work. And that's exactly my, I mean, my, my world is wrapped around my industry, you know, and to be in a position where, it's got to stop right now because I'm either too old or people still think I'm in America. I mean, literally last year, someone said to me, oh, I thought you were still on Broadway. And you think, I've not been on Broadway for like four years, five years. I've been in Singapore. And you think, well, what do you do? What do you do? And it's, I mean, one could thank social media for that for at least you can show people where you are, but then that in itself, oh, let's not start with social media. I mean, I've fallen foul of that so many times. And again, right now, seeing all the activity about Les Mis, seeing all the activity about the 25th anniversary tour, mm. and I'm not in it. Mm. And it's horrible. It's horrible to see that and go, yeah. I'm not in that now. Can I ask you a question about Les Mis? How long did you play Chavert for? I first started Javert was 2008 and then the last time I played it was Manila so that was 2000 so that was two three years ago yeah, sure. so I did over uh, over 2000 shows yeah. within you know kind of um, Les Mis original at Queens so I did Javert then I did the original 25th anniversary production of Javert uh, then I did Canada uh, Broadway Singapore uh, Manila and then Singapore um, I only ask because obviously um, you mentioned that um, 
that you had quite a lonely tra track during it, um, and obviously he commits suicides mm. in in the track. How did um, how did you get into that mindset of being that character, um, and how did you keep the character and the person Earl separate whilst you know dealing dealing with your own personal things and then having to you know yeah put it put it on stage and be so invested in such a deep rooted character now this is an interesting question so there was a certain point in my um, time with phantom that i was taught an incredible lesson and i little name drop here mr hal prince um he came to see um one of my shows and he, he saw the show the night before and then we had this kind of session in the afternoon which was extraordinary, which was incredible, but also was horrific. Um, I was, um, it was a, it was a company, it was a, it was a group rehearsal workshop afternoon, and I was kind of stripped of everything that I thought I was doing right. Um, and not only was that a challenge by Hal Prince, that you know, you, the one that I was was hoping I could impress the night before, but also the company, and. It was horrific. It was horrific. Um, however, he taught me the most incredible lesson of how to be a performer in musical theatre. Um, and I won't go into detail in respect to the process, how he got to this comment, um, but it was a, a lot to do about, you know, our, our perception uh, of how musical theatre works. And he said to me, um, Earl, you can't compete with the pictures that I've directed. And I kind of, I had to walk out of the building, which I did um, between that and the evening show, to try and understand what that meant. And it was all of a sudden I realised it's got nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do... He had said earlier, Earl, stop, you know, you, you, you're in the programme as the Phantom of the Opera. You're wearing the phantom mask. Everyone refers to you as the phantom. Um, stop being the phantom. Thereafter, there came that comment about you can't compete with the pictures. And all of a sudden, my perspective as a performer went from me to looking in on me and then seeing behind me the proscenium and the collaboration, the synergy between so many artistic departments to get story across, as well as the kind of audioscape of the orchestra and the music and all of that. And then you you work out instantly, oh, hang on a minute, it's got nothing to do with what I'm emoting, what I'm doing. I've, as a performer, I have to sit in this world. I have to use everything to my disposal. So at that point, I became very engineered with what I do. Uh, I don't invest emotionally. Uh, I understand what's going on behind me. I know how to sit in a picture now. Um, so from the point of view of, of how I affect, allowed the character to affect me, I don't. I, I do not go down that route. I have nothing to do with the character. I know what I have to do. I know where I have to be. I know what I have to say sometimes. Um, and I know how to use everything around me. But what affects me the most is how I perceive my position in the company, how people perceive me 
and my perception of where I perceive me in the company. My want to protect the brand for the management to do the best job. And again, that has, you know, I've fallen foul of that occasionally. Um, you know, I wish I was more chilled and relaxed and not didn't worry or care as much as I do. Um, but I allow, unfortunately, the perception to get in the way. I allow the fact that Loneliness is a terrible thing for me. I do not cope with it very well at all and haven't, never have done. And when you're kind of forced to be away from the company and the decision was always, I'll go back to my dressing room. I'll go back to my dressing room. I won't sit with the company. I'll go back to the dressing room. And it's just a terrible place to be in. Um, but I think, actually, now you've kind of provoked me thinking about the character of Javert. I mean, it's him as a character, him as a person, you know, striving for what he believed in, to be then proven that there's a different way, but not being able to, not being able to justify that because his upbringing or his beliefs were, you know, absolutely categorically this way and no other way. Um, I suppose, maybe, I mean, you could on reflection easily kind of say there were similarities. But yeah, I mean, I think Javert and my time with Cameron McIntosh, you know, again, and it's that, you know, you also realize you kind of institutionalize, you're working for this incredible world that is the McIntosh world, Cameron McIntosh, you know, and I've been working for him for 20 years or so. And it's really bizarre. Um, you know, and Cameron has on times, you know, I have been summoned to have a little chat occasionally. And again, you know, one of the biggest things that I was taught is that they're big enough to look after their own brands. Just do your job and have fun. You know, Broadway was given to me on the proviso that I went there and had fun. Um, one of the nice things, I suppose, about Cameron's office and, and I'm sure many other producers that when, you know, if they do have a lot of trust in someone and they have a lot of faith in their ability, they will take the time to kind of bring you to one side if they feel that you are struggling with X, Y, Z. They knew I struggled um, with Toronto. They were very, very aware of that because I kind of made everyone very aware. I was a very unpleasant person to be around. I was incredibly grumpy. I was incredibly depressed. I didn't want to be there, but I didn't know where I wanted to be also. Um, and the delightful Trevor Jackson kind of took me out to dinner one day and said, look, you know, we're not losing faith in you, but you've been a bugger. You really have, you know, you go through that process of going, well, this is why I, this is, I believe I'm looking after your brand. And then like, well, we're big enough to look after our own brands. It's okay. Thank you. <laughs> but it's okay. So this is the position. At the moment, there are people who don't want to send you to Broadway. But there are people who do want to send you to Broadway. If you can go to Broadway and have fun and enjoy yourself and enjoy it for what it is, then we're good. And that was the decision. And I did. I went and had an incredible time. But it didn't last because the gremlins 
soon come back in. You know, when we were on the Far East tour of Les Mis, you know, again, that had its own challenges. You know, you are in a position of dealing with things that you never thought you'd have to deal with. And, yeah, and it's and now all of a sudden, whether it be for the way I am or way I have been, I'm, I'm you know, I'm perceiving my not being involved with the Cameron world slant on me and the way I've been as a performer. Whereas actually it could very well be a simple thing. I was custodian for that part for that amount of time. It's now someone else's time. And that's a fair analogy. But when you struggle with confidence, when you struggle with your position and hanging on to that position as a principle, hanging on to that perception of I am a leading man, inverted commas, yeah, my God, the, you know, the pressure that, is, that I put on myself to maintain that level. And now I think I'm done. And that's what's the terrible thing as well. My partner is so patient with me. But my God, I mean, I know she wants to punch me occasionally because <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm worthless. My, my CV means nothing. And that's a terrible mindset to be in. You know, where I have had and do have, I am one of, you know, a handful of performers that are still working after a 25, 30-year period with these incredible roles but I believe that because I can't get an audition at the moment because I'm not a part of that world or I don't seem to be a part of that world my CV means nothing and I'm sure I'm not alone you know and I try and I fight with that daily I do fight with that with daily and you know and it's and it's a terrible it can be a good day, and you kind of go, no, it's great, it's fine, I have been a part of that world. I have had some incredible opportunities to the days of, why aren't I part of it anymore? You know, and yeah, it's, so it's, you know, so again, going back to your original question about being here, it is about making people understand and realise that this, even when things might be going incredibly well, it does stop, because it has to stop for whatever reason and you have to be prepared and you have to be ready for that mentally um, more than anything and but I do wish at some point like what you guys are doing that there is the forum to be able to be open you know and again as a guy as a man you know you do feel slightly emasculated by you know I, I feel rubbish I don't feel good as a human because I'm not successful you know I'm not playing Javert again or whatever or I'm not being this that or t'other you know and you do and it affects me personally I feel worthless sometimes you know and that affects me physically and that affects me emotionally and it affects me you know today you know even coming in and you know there is a it's a big thing to come into London you know I keep I've got a, a gorgeous friend who you know who uh, she's a producer at Chichester and she often invites me to come and see these incredible things. And I'm like, I can't. I don't want to sit in front of something that I think, well, why can't I be in that? Mm. And you think, oh, oh, grow up. But you can't help. But So I'd rather take myself away. Again, taking yourself away from it. Um, and it's difficult because, again, the perception is, you read out that incredible list of all my things, and your perception is... Earl is this, but quite frankly, Earl isn't. And Earl at the moment is working as a handyman uh, in a stables 
painting and decorating and doing electrics and stuff like that, whilst he tries and figures out where his place is in this industry. And, yeah, so... Mm -hmm. I have to just say thank you for coming in and being so open and honest. I think, you know, it certainly gave us a lot to think about and inspired us by what you're saying, and I'm sure it's going to do the same to all of our listeners. So, honestly, thank you so much. As you said, that's kind of the point of this platform is that people don't talk about what what happens when you've been in the industry for 25 years or having a perceived success and what that what that can do to you mentally. And so, yeah, I think it's this is going to be a very important podcast for yeah, people to listen yeah, to, for sure. So as we said at the start of the podcast, we are gratefully sponsored by King Manual Therapy. Stephen is a manual therapist who specialises in myofascial release and Scarlett and myself are both here with him at his clinic today. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Scarlett. How are you feeling after your treatment? I feel really, really good. I had quite a lot of back tension and neck tension, I think you would say. Stephen just kind of shuggled me all up. That's a technical term. <laughs> So it was something that I wanted to start in 2019 in order to look after my mental health as I carry quite a lot of stress around my body. Um, And Stephen's clinic is such a supportive, safe and funny atmosphere. He offers top banter as well throughout his treatments. It's been a really great thing to do in 2019 for me. And I went for a vocal massage last week and having put off going for vocal massages for years because I've heard about how painful they are, I can confidently say that it was completely pain-free and I felt so much better after it and I think that there is a big link between looking after your mental health and looking after your physical health as well. So Stephen, if people would like to book in with you, where can they find you? So you can find me at kingmanualtherapy.com and there's a whole little booking system there. You can just schedule, come and see me, come say hi. We'll work out what we can do. And um, you can find me on Twitter. You'll find me, King Manual Therapy, and uh, Instagram, also King Manual Therapy. I feel like that's really unimaginative. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure you check it out. I just wanted to go back um, to what you said there about being a man um, obviously the topic of mental health is still very recently being openly discussed um, and there's still a huge stigma attached to it um, but particularly there is an even larger stigma attached to mental health in men um, if you read up on um, statistics and stuff it's quite shocking um, the, the rate in male particularly male suicide um, what is your thoughts on the whole, you know, being a man and you know, man up and you can't show your feelings because you're a man, you have to be a man, you have to be strong. What, what are your views on this, obviously, as a man that is very open with your feelings? I think it's, I like in our environment, so, you know, when you're doing a show um, and how the fact that it's no dissimilar to the playground when we were at school, you know, everyone tends to be drawn into whatever the strongest denominator is, as we did as young kids, you know, wanting to be liked or wanted to be a part of the cool people or whatever. And you always lent to what was the strongest denominator, but whether that be a negative or a positive. It is difficult to, I don't know, it's, I mean, I'm, I have to say, I'm, I am surprised by what you say. Um, I hadn't realised within our industry, that there is an issue about men being open with feelings. I see that in other industries where that is an absolute no-no. 
in our industry, one would have thought it an artistic creative world where, you know, and again, it's about safeguarding. You know, our industry has um, and should have a responsibility to safeguarding, you know, not only as a child, but also as a, as a vulnerable adult. You know, that's paramount. Um, I'm surprised. I mean, I suppose I have over the years seen bullying of some description um, within the world of our, our, our industry, you know. And again, and it's, I think it changes when you have a, um, a predominantly straight company versus a predominantly um, gay company. Um, I think that also has different challenges and depending on the upbringing of the straight guys or, or whatever. I mean, yeah, I've seen scenarios where you see other people who are quite happy just to enjoy anyone and everyone's company but kind of get sucked into not being a particular type of person, you know. And I think, um, I mean, I have no problems about being open and... And I know sometimes, though, I am open, and I, but then, then I do kind of go, should I have said that? Is a management going to trust me now? The fact that I'm saying the things that I'm saying, do I come across as a risk? You know, and, it's, and that's, that's a difficult thing to consider, you know. Um, is what I'm saying in this podcast now going to be scrutinized by certain casting directors or directors or going... God, he's an absolute fruitcake, you know, and he's really sensitive and, oh, my God. But, you know, I know my job. I know how to do my job. I also know how to work and be backstage now through all of the things that I have experienced. But I think any man who struggles with being open, I don't, I think, I think that's an incredibly normal thing. And I don't actually think it's got, it doesn't have a lot to do with our industry. I just think it's in general, you know, guys... And again, I suppose it's that perception of what a man is in respect to publications, social media, TV, you know, the, 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 um, the, the I suppose the, what's, what's the male equivalent of being, you know, the misogyny that goes on, you know, a guy belittling or, you know, a, a, a woman, you know, the, it's, it's, guys do that to guys as well. You know, you can't help it. But I think it's it's about you as a person, and if you want to do and say the right thing that you believe in. Uh, that friend of mine, Paul Wilkins, I also believe has been on this um, podcast in the past, um, tweeted something today about just you know just be open, just talk. You know, we are great people at talking, though we are also brilliant at being guarded. You know, and the spoils of, of social media, of, of, you know, falling foul of believing that your friend, your peer is having an amazing career, an amazing time, when you know damn well he might not be, you know, or she might not be. And it's, but I think it's, I've never felt wrong in being open. Um, I think the only struggle I have is, is with myself about not being able to handle situations uh, or not being able to be strong enough to kind of go, no, I disagree, you know. Um, but that's me, that's my education, that's my upbringing, that's my ability to be able to enter into an awkward conversation 
and stand my ground. You know, there are a lot of people who can't do that. Um, so we'll shy away from it, obviously, you know. But the fact is, you just got to find someone who you know you can trust to be open with. You know, you're, yeah, you're not going to be able to find everyone who's open enough to, or mature enough to kind of go, I get you, you know, or I don't get you, but I'm really happy you've, you've talked to me. I think we've said this before about the whole worrying that you might be a risk. Is there any kind of yeah. mental mental health problems or mental health issues you might have doesn't diminish your ability to perform at, at all, really? I mean, you that's the thing. That's when your track record speaks for itself that you've done all these things. Yeah. yeah. I've just produced, um, just before Christmas, we did a massive education initiative um, uh, where we had 135 uh, young performers from the age of six up to 18, uh, doing a project called Disney uh, Peter Pan Junior. And um, we had quite a few um, participants who do struggle with various elements as what we call being on the spectrum or that type of thing. But the being a part of that process and seeing what theater gives them um, is incredible but it's the time that we also took to steer them to that you know it's very time consuming which I which is where I think because of the speed that musical theatre works sometimes there is no time there is no opportunity to kind of you know have you know once a week little meetings or something or to be able to sit down and just openly discuss things or you know um, there is a it's and it's really difficult, but understanding the importance of being able to talk and understanding, and what was also interesting is seeing some of the older participants take on the responsibility of looking after the younger ones, and to have seen that kind of gives you f faith, you know, in people's ability to be aware and to go, that person's struggling. I need to intervene. You know, and there aren't many people that do that. People are very about now, how it affects them now, and what can I do that's, that will benefit me, rather than going, I see one or two people around me who, who need help. You know, and I think there is something about being aware, um, not only about your own um, health, mentally, physically, but to kind of just stop and look around you and just see if there is anyone around you who is struggling, particularly if you are experienced, particularly if you have been in the industry for a while. You know, we, I, I believe I have a responsibility as well with not only the people I employ, mm -hmm. I direct or I produce that, you know, I have a responsibility to look after them, but as a leading man or, a, or whatever you want to call it, I also have a responsibility to look after people who I see struggling. You know, and I think, I think we all do in a world that sometimes can't because of the speed in which it happens. You know, it's, it's often done and dusted within, you know, a split second and that person is still without the support. Um, but no, I mean, I think that, that is, um, yeah, that's incredibly important. So what do you do to look after your mental health? Obviously, you've just mentioned you're producing. Is that something that is integral to you keeping creative um, in this industry? The producing comes with a different set of considerations. Um, though, 
from my point of view, um, as much as I did have a friend <laughs> years and years and years ago, say, why do you produce? Who do you produce for, Earl? Which has always kind of stayed with me. Um, but I have... I've been very lucky to kind of create things that I've created and shows that have been around the world and that type of thing. Um, but there is a younger Earl that would look at the older Earl and go, I never thought I'd be able to do that. You know, the younger Earl who had, who failed everything at school, you know. And that's kind of my drive with regards to producing. Producing does offer a distraction from the performing world. Um, but it's it's difficult sometimes to not allow both to fall into each other. You know, I know too much in the performing world because I know too much about the producing world. And But it has taught me to shut up sometimes. It has taught me to not say silly things. And it has taught me to, um, you know, just be a little bit aware. Um I suppose, I mean, what I try and do as much as I, I mean, I physically try and keep as fit as I can. I run a lot, um, you know, and I just try and keep busy. I'm terrible if I'm sat at home doing nothing. That is my worst moment. But that's my dangerous moment as well. That is when I, you know, sit on social media and wonder why I'm not able to post yeah. photographs of me in a production. Um, you know, and it's, that's, that's a struggle. I mean, I joke about being a handyman at a stables. I mean, it has been bizarrely the most rewarding thing I've done in a very long time. You know, just to turn up outside amongst these incredible animals um, and just do a job uh, or a number of jobs, that, that's all I'm thinking about. And it's, it's really lovely, you know, and it's quite, it's incredibly rewarding. And though there is this little, little voice in my head going, oh, look at you. You're really unsuccessful, aren't you? <laughs> How you fallen, you know? And it's but that's the, that yeah. those those are the yeah. things those are the little demons I struggle with, um, and they are emphasised, you know, by the fact that you know I do ring my agent and go, so anything going on? Which I know is the most stupid thing to say because you know they'd call you if there was something yeah. going on. But and you can't think. Oh no, I'm in that place. I'm in that place of just phoning my agent just to see, yeah. you know. And when they're like, no, you know, you're like, oh, okay, bye. Um, yeah, it's. But I, you know, I. It's really difficult. I mean, I don't. Mm, I do, and I don't keep myself mentally healthy. I I still have. My thing is my thing right now that I struggle with is understanding how unhappy on occasions this industry has made me. And yet I still want to be a part of it. Yet I still drawn in to being a big player in it, even though it has been, it has attributed to the depression and the various other challenges that I've had to deal with over the years. And then that annoys me. And then that gets to me. And I'm like, why? Why do I still feel a need to be a part of this world? But then I'm a creative. I, that's how I express myself. And that it's about um, validation. You know, my industry, what I do on stage validates me. 
And I think hopefully one day it'll be lovely to, for that not to be the case. Me waking up in the morning should validate me, but for whatever reason, I still have this need to be a part or, perce or perceived to be a part of this industry. And that's, that's not a great place to be in. Um, but, you know, it doesn't, and you're right, it doesn't take away that I am more than capable of being a producer. I am more than capable of being a director and I'm more than capable of being an artist. But it would be interesting to see how this resonates and I know I'm being brave and it's a little scary because there is a, my, this little internal policeman which I've been told I have through counselling once upon a time many, many years ago who's going to sit on my shoulder now and go ah oh, you see you shouldn't have said that you shouldn't have said that because now that will be perceived as, as a weakness that will be perceived as you are a liability um, you know rather than going actually good on you for chatting about it but you know we can ease this, yeah, it doesn't affect what you do as a job. So it's, but, oh my goodness, it's, yeah. Yeah, so anyone thinking of doing <laughs> theatre as a career, do it with caution. Do it with enjoyment, but with caution. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who are leaving college with a debt, my heart goes out it's going to be a challenge. And I, I say that with, in the nicest possible way. But the, I'm sure people aren't stupid enough to ignore the fact that it is going to be a challenge. But it is. But it's also a challenge even 30 years on. Yeah. It's still a challenge. I feel like I did 30 years ago, trying to find my first job. That's how I feel right now. And that's surely not right. Yeah. But it is. It is, it is the world, and I have to find a way around that. I have to find a way to be able to navigate that and be, be happy. So, but that's, that's my challenge. Yeah. I think it's, it's so true what you just said there, that there isn't enough education in drama schools um, that we're aware of, you know, an, an insight into what the industries purely like there there it's just not there you know the debt side of it, it it's it's there but it's not actually strung down and said this is how difficult it will be it's just yeah you'll have debt but you'll sort it out if you knew how damaging this industry could be on your mental health um when you were starting out would you have went into it i am going to challenge the question because i don't think my industry is what is damaging I mean, like I said earlier, there are a lot of people who will come at this very differently with oodles of confidence and will just be that type of person that just enjoys every single day for what it is. I, for whatever reason, uh, am wired differently, you know, and that's all there is to it. Our industry isn't damaging. Um, our industry is what it is. It's our understanding of it, um, whether that be the responsibility of the educators to say you have to look out for this industry it can be unfair it's trend driven you might not suit the trend for a couple of years you have to be prepared for that it's not damaging i think it's i think it really is about our perception of how we exist coexist or use it um you know, this industry, like I said, has afforded me some incredible opportunities. And it's, it, it is always down to me as the person 
to know how to best utilize or deal with it or reject it you know and but that's that's my wiring wiring that's got nothing to do about my industry my industry i'm sure doesn't go out of its way to make me feel like poop you know it doesn't that's me that's down to me so it's and i and i think though to kind of answer the question i i, I think any industry has its challenges you know and i i feel so strongly about those you know who have been in what they thought was a, a retirement employment you know that you work for 30 40 years you get your pension and that's it that don't get that anymore that there is not that security at least we have a a, a notion that theater has no security we know that if that was a surprise and they'd not told us about that then yes i'd agree with what you said about as, as a question but we do know that we know that this 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 industry has oodles of pitfalls um had i known how i'd be affected by my industry had i had known that i wasn't as strong as being in this industry often requires then i might have maybe looked for a different path maybe i don't know um but i'm here in it <laughs> i've been a part of it for such a long time um but so i hope you don't mind me saying that but it's the, i think the question is wrong i don't think our industry is responsible for our mental health i think it's how we are and how we navigate it um so there has to be a point of of education there has to be a point in that process the apprenticeship stages of of being made aware of how brutal it can be on you as a person if you're not that kind of gung ho don't give a rat's ass about it and just wake up every day and going yay you know but if you are a person that is you know overly conscientious or why why this why that why everything and you question everything then yeah you're going to have you will have troubles you know and it's but to be told that there is a process that you should look out for i think is so and could be so beneficial to so many performers young and old and i honestly think that this interview with yourself is going to be so beneficial for so many people honestly thank you so much could you walk into a room today and say i'm having a bad mental health day <laughs> brilliant um <laughs> could i do that yes i could do that with the knowledge that i'm going to be looked at rather strangely by people um because ultimately what does that mean what does it mean i mean it's like i said everybody mold, mental health issues is so multifaceted and it is basically the variants are huge and enormous and it, i think it on some level it would be wrong to use it as one umbrella type of saying because everyone is affected differently whether they might be the happiest they might have the happiest demeanor in the world there is still something which will fire them or engage a degree of doubt you know could i what well, yeah i know i think something we said earlier i don't i'm 
I don't have, don't mind being open about how I feel. Um, so I, I certainly would, and I think if I was having a bad mental health day, <laughs> I probably wouldn't walk into the room. Yeah, we've never had that response before. There we go. Earl, thank you so much. This has been such an insightful interview for both Scarlett and myself, and I'm really excited to get it out there and for people to listen. So just to round things up nicely, uh, we have another little game to finish off <laughs> called Finish the Sentence. So Scarlett, do you want to do the honours? Oh, yes. Here we go. Mental health to me is... Being truthful. The first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is... Coffee. (laughs) What do you have in your coffee? Nothing. Nothing, just black. Black. Ooh. The fresh air makes me... Smile. In a former life, I was a... Horse. Yes, I love it. My dead or alive dinner party guest would be... My grandparents. In the future, I want to... Work. <laughs> Don't we all have? Don't we all? <laughs> Errol, I'm sure you will. I'm so confident you will. Last one. My biggest achievement is sitting here talking to you guys. Oh. Errol, honestly, thank you. Thank you. I honestly mean this just from me personally. You have been such an inspiration to talk to today, and you've very much inspired me. So thank you so much yeah, for coming and chatting. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Industry Minds. We wanted to make our listeners aware of the services that we offer. We are lucky to have the support of our counsellor, Mary Birch. Mary offers a private telephone or Skype service 24-7 and completely free of charge. She's also holding one-on-one sessions at a creator-friendly price of £25. So if you are interested, please get in touch. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please hit the subscribe button. You can also rate and review us on Apple. We want to reach as many creatives as we can, and this isn't possible without ratings from our lovely listeners. Share, tell a friend, and please continue to spread the word, as it really could help someone. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with you very, very soon. Thank you for joining us. Bye! Bye!